Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only master cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. I love to talk to people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today's episode 98 of Feast Your Ears. It is an unseasonably warm February Wednesday here in New York City. I think we're going to hit 70 degrees today, which is a little weird. Uh, You know, sitting in the studio and... (laughs) <laughs> t-shirts and i saw somebody walking down the street in shorts earlier it seems a little weird but uh i'm really pleased to be joined in the studio today by sam frank sam is a cheesemonger or has been a cheesemonger cheesemaker cheese seller he's currently in charge of the north american distribution of yumi cheese which is a maker and importer of excellent swiss cheeses uh, I like to say cheeses from Switzerland, so people don't think it's just holy cheese. That is a, that is a good <laughs> that is a good point. Thank you, Sam. Uh, so thanks for coming in. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, I think that's a that that's a good place to start. We can talk about like distinctions in cheese. Um, yeah, I guess when you say Swiss cheese, everybody's image is of like a Jarlsberg with like big holes in the exactly. middle. Exactly. Yeah, and that all goes back to Switzerland's got a pretty interesting cheese history. Um, there was the Swiss Cheese Union was a, a regulating body that was set up by the government after World War One started uh, to control all of the milk and cheese production in the country of Switzerland. Uh, and for whatever reason, they just chose to most aggressively market Emmentaler, right? Uh, which is the traditional cheese with the very big eyes, the big holes in it. And so that became the most industrialized cheese, and that's what they exported the most of, and that's just kind of why. Today, when people say Swiss cheese, they're really just talking about one kind of cheese from Switzerland. Right, right. I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, from a from a language perspective, like last night I was looking at a burger menu and it, you know, you could get Swiss cheese on it, but right. one could play, you know, one could be very particular and say, well, what kind of Swiss cheese do you have for the burger? Yeah, if you wanted to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so are you that guy? No, no, I, I try not to be. I, I, I think in my earlier days of getting into cheese, I was that guy and now I've toned it back a bit. Um, so, so let's talk about how you got into cheese. Um, so right now you are in charge of, tell us what you, tell us what you do for Yumi. Mm, good question. Um, <laughs> so Yumi, they're a producer in Switzerland and over the summer they, they incorporated here in the United States because they are fiercely independent. And, uh, so they wanted to be doing all of their own import here. Uh, so they brought me on board to oversee the U.S. side of operations. So once the cheese has arrived at our warehouse here in Brooklyn, I then, you know, oversee getting it out to, uh, you know, we have a lot of direct relationships with like independent shops around the Northeast. And then we also have distribution partners in other parts of the country. So I just try to get the cheese to everyone as quickly as possible. So it's, you know, as fresh as as fresh as can be out of the cave in Switzerland. Cool. How many different uh, cheeses does Yumi make? 
Yumi makes a, a, a pretty good amount. Um, I would say close to 20, probably. They do a lot of hard cheeses, semi-hard cheeses, uh, soft cheeses. Uh, raclette is huge in Switzerland, so just with raclette alone, they probably have at least 20 varieties. Wow. Um, so, yeah, they make quite a bit, and then they also are selecting cheeses from a few other producers throughout Switzerland. Prime, most of what we're selling in the States is just what they are making. Um, but in Switzerland, they've got like an enormous catalog of really, really interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, so you say you have direct relationships. So if someone is, say, in Brooklyn, where can they find Yumi? Uh, Campbell Cheese and Grocery, they've been our most loyal customer. Um, so they were, they were our first customer and they've consistently been ordering the cheese. So Campbell Cheese and Grocery in Williamsburg, you can definitely always find our stuff there. Um, I actually, just before I got here, I just received my first order from Sahadi's. Excellent. Uh, over on Atlantic Avenue. Um, what a, a, I will just take a take a moment to say what a wonderful shop. I love Sahadi's. It is me like too. it's like a step back in time, but not in a like not in a bad way. They have an incredible system inside that building, and they yeah. produce so much stuff, and they make a lot of it themselves. It's awesome. Yeah, and I, I spent a year after high school living in the Middle East, so I love going there. Cool. <laughs> um, and then also Bell Cheese. They're a pretty new shop. Um, and the DeKalb Market Hall in downtown Brooklyn. They've also been consistently carrying our cheese. And I would definitely hate myself if I forgot to mention some... Oh, Eastern District in Greenpoint on Manhattan Avenue. Very cool. As well, yeah. And then distributed in other places as well. Yeah, and there's, there's some shops in Manhattan that carry it. We've got a couple shops in Connecticut and Massachusetts. And then uh, we work with a small distributor in Seattle, a small distributor in Portland, uh, a small distributor in Washington, D.C., um, and we're about to start working with another one in uh, the Midwest and another one in California. Cool. So how did you get into cheese? That is, uh, it's, it's a long question or a long <laughs> answer, but I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, I got at the end of high school, um, you know, my, I think it was my junior year that An Inconvenient Truth came out, uh, the, the very famous Al Gore documentary. And that really got me interested in environmental studies. And then through that, I got very interested in sustainable agriculture. Uh, and so I was going to the University of Vermont as a freshman uh, studying ecological agriculture. And I was not very academically motivated. And I was paying out-of-state tuition, which is pretty astronomical there. Uh, so I decided to drop out. Um, but I loved Vermont. Uh, and so I decided I would... I, I did eventually transfer to the Evergreen State College, but I decided to take a year off in between. And so I just wanted to find a job on a farm. And so the summer after I dropped out, I worked on the student-run vegetable farm, uh, which was a really great learning experience. But then, you know, at the end of the summer, uh, you know, I had to find something else because right. the season was <laughs> over and, you know, we were paid by the school. And so that ended at the end of like when the fall semester began. Um, so I, I still remember to this day, my former RA, uh, she's one of those amazing people that can, you know, do like work a million different jobs and be a straight A student. And one of her millions of jobs was being a cheesemaker at Shelburne Farms. Um, and so I ran into her at a potluck right at the end of that summer. And I said, hey, Kate, Shelburne Farms hiring right now? And she said, as a matter of fact, they're looking for an assistant <laughs> cheesemaker. And... Uh, you know, as believe it or not, it's a pretty competitive job. I think they got like a hundred applications wow. from their ad they posted, and so I, I, to, I always give Kate, give Kate, uh, all of the credit for kind of changing the uh, the path of my life because 
she definitely got me that job. And then that was, you know, I worked that job until the end of the season. And then I just kind of fell deeper and deeper into cheese ever since. Yeah. And, and eventually um, that led you to win the 2016 uh, Daphne uh, Zepos teaching award, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, with some, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of cheese adventures in between, but yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah. And so tell me about that award. What did that allow you to do? Um, so the Daphne Zeppos Teaching Award is, is a really amazing grant. Um, I was the fourth recipient, so it's still pretty new. And it's named for Daphne Zeppos, who was an amazing educator, uh, promoter of, of artisan cheese in the United States. And, uh, you know, anyone, any of the OGs in the industry will all <laughs> give her credit for, you know, giving them a lot of inspiration in their early days. Greg Blaise, you know, the host of Cutting the Curd, for example, he always speaks very highly of her. Um, and so sadly, she was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. And so in her final months, she and her husband went about setting up this scholarship fund in her name that every year it gives one uh, young cheese professional $5,000 to basically do what they want with it. But um you have to apply with a vision. And the, the idea behind it was that you travel to Europe where, you know, they've got centuries of tradition, of cheese tradition, uh, to learn something about cheese that we don't necessarily have access to back here in the United States. And then it culminates in uh, every summer, there's the uh, annual American Cheese Society Conference. And so it culminates in you giving a presentation at the ACS conference. And then the, the idea is that you do continue teaching about your subject, you know, wherever you go in your uh, your cheese endeavors. Sure. If anyone would like to read uh, Sam's paper on that, uh, if you Google search Sam Frank's vision, I think oh, you'll okay. find it. Good to know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, if you, or Sam Frank DZTA, that's yeah. probably, yeah. Yeah. Um, so so your, uh, ultimately your paper was about heritage breed dairy animals yes, and why those are important. Uh, and you went to Europe and studied them and then came back to kind of talk about a little bit about why, why are we not doing as much with them in the U S yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and actually my interest in that subject even predates my interest in cheese. So when I was a freshman at the university of Vermont, um, I w I went to a lecture um, by this guy, Doug Flack, who is uh, the owner of Flack Family Farms. And uh, I think it's Enosburg, uh, Enosburg Falls, Vermont. It's in northwestern Vermont. It's a, it was a lecture on biodynamic farming. He's a biodynamic farmer. Um, but he keeps uh, American Milking Devon, which is one of North America's few heritage uh, dairy breeds. And he spoke a lot about working with these animals and how they're very dynamic and how they work really well for a small diversified farm like his. Um, and I guess just if people are wondering, like, what does that mean, heritage breed? Uh, there's not really a set definition for it, um, but the idea is kind of the, they're the land race breeds. So similar to like heirloom varieties of vegetables, they, they are the, the breed of that particular region. Um, so like the American Milking Devon, for example, they were uh, their ancestors are the Devon cows of England, which actually no longer exist. Um, so originally the, the Devon cows were a multipurpose breed for dairy and for beef and for draft power. Um, and they were one of the first breeds imported by uh, English settlers in the 1600s. Um, and so now the Devon breed that exists today is a beef breed. They've been specialized for beef. 
Uh, and so they actually, the American milking Devon of today of basically are pretty much concentrated in the Northeastern United States are actually the closest representation of the original Devon cow mm. of the Middle Ages in England. Wow. And are there dairies, uh, I mean, are there cheeses available from heritage breed animals currently in the United States? Um, that are being made in the United States, there are, but very few. Um, there's one farm in Maine called Winterhill Farm, and they milk Randall cattle, which is another land race breed. They're actually uh, from, uh, they're from northeastern Vermont, or I could be wrong about that. They're from Vermont. Um, and uh, they're also, so all of these breeds are critically endangered, and the Randall cattle are no exception. Um, so Winterhill Farm, they keep Randalls and Jerseys, and then they also mix them as well, um, and they, they produce cheese commercially. There's another farm in Maine called North Branch Farm, and they keep American Milking Devon and Canadiens, which are native to Quebec. Um, and then I think they've got a few other breeds as well. Um, but yeah, the list is pretty small. Yeah, and, and this is something that you talk about in your, in your paper in Europe. Um, traditionally, for instance, uh, you, know, you had the Vacha Rosa, which was red cow, which was the traditional breed for Parmesan. Yep. Right, the milk was used for Parmesan. In the modern age, what kind of cows are being milked for most of the cheese we eat? The Holstein cow. Um, I mean, the, to a degree, also the Jersey cow, um, but by far, by far, the Holstein cow, which, you know, if anyone closes their eyes and pictures a cow, they probably picture a black and white <laughs> spotted cow. Right. That's the Holstein cow. It's the most, uh, it's the most highly domesticated animal on the planet. Uh, it's of all domesticated animals. It's of any breed. It's got the most. Uh, it's got the highest population, and it's in almost every country in the world. Wow. Um, so they they're a breed that became highly specialized. Actually, mostly in the United States, they're originally a breed um, from Germany and Holland. Um, that uh, you know, wealthy kind of gentlemen farmers in the late 1800s started bringing them in. Um, before there was some kind of epidemic and the government no longer allowed any importation of cattle for a period of time. Um, so you got like a bunch of these wealthy guys that had brought in a bunch of these cows and they were all very, com they, they were very highly organized. And so they, they had a, like one of the most organized associations for that time for any breed. And they were just kind of very competitive. So they were constantly uh, breeding to increase milk production hmm. where uh, in the past you might've, had breeders breeding for lots of different traits, not specifically just volume of milk. The Holstein was really kind of the first breed where they were very aggressively bred solely for milk volume. Hmm. And so today, when a farmer is being paid based on the amount of milk that they produce, it's almost a no-brainer that they're going to milk Holstein cows. Sure. Um, jerseys have also become pretty popular. Um, you know, because they jerseys have, have high butter fat. Yeah, exactly. So jerseys, they're good milk producers. They certainly don't come close to the volume of a Holstein, but their butter fat content is insane. Um, and I so I will say some of the best ice cream I have ever had was soft serve mm. made from Jersey milk yeah, yeah. in Japan. Really? Yes. Interesting. Yeah. I hear, I understand that Japan's got a pretty booming, uh, like specialty dairy industry now. And actually yeah. Yumi exports cheese to Japan. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so Jersey's because of their butterfat content, they've become very popular because some dairy farmers, depending on 
the milk co-op you work with will also get an additional, they get paid additional if they've got a high solids content in their milk. Ah. And then cheesemakers, of course, love jerseys because, you know, the more solids you have in the milk, the more cheese you're going to get right. and the more money you're going to get. Right. And and actually, to, to bring it full circle, so, you know, just for, for if anyone's listening who doesn't understand how cheese is made, um, you are coagulating the solids and then what you have left over is whey in many exactly. cases. Um, and I just, there's a very interesting article on Eater right now, and I will, during, we're going to take a break in a minute. When we do that, I will look up who the author was, but about the rise of the protein industry and mm. drinks like muscle milk, mm-hmm. which are mostly made from whey, mm-hmm. which used to just be a byproduct from cheese making yep. went down the drain. Yeah, yeah. Or if you were smart, you'd feed it to pigs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or in Italy, there's literally, so ricotta is uh, traditionally a cheese uh, that's a byproduct cheese. So you take the whey and you heat it up till it's almost boiling and then the residual solids in the whey will coagulate. And that's how real traditional ricotta is made. Primarily in the United States, it's not made that way. What we think of as ricotta is not really ricotta. Um, but in Italy, I mean, you wouldn't, people would think you're crazy if you were a cheesemaker that didn't make ricotta. Casey Johnston is the name of the author. Casey and, Johnston. Yes, and if you go on Eater, it's called How Protein Conquered America. It's a okay. very interesting article I read it yesterday. Cool. Uh, we're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors. Uh, and when we come back, I have a question for you, Sam, about Reclette. Okay. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese. The farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today in the studio here behind Roberta's in Bushwick, I have Sam Frank, uh, currently of Yumi Cheese, but Sam also worked at Crown Finish Caves and has worked in a lot of other places. Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, I recommend you go back to the beginning of the episode and you can hear all about 
all about that. Um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about Reclet. Okay. Uh, because you mentioned in the first part of the show that uh, Yumi makes 20-something different varieties of cheese. More, yeah, more or less. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty... I mean, you know, when I think of raclette, I think of just melted cheese on bread. Yeah. Um, but clearly, there's a lot more to it. Yeah, I mean, it's the same base recipe for all of the cheeses, and then they just mix in all kinds of different ingredients. And uh, I've been over a couple of times to Yumi in Switzerland, and they actually... Uh, since the very beginning, they've always done the Saturday farmer's market in downtown Bern, the capital of Switzerland, which is about 20 minutes away from where their headquarters are. Um, and, uh, I mean, we, it's the, uh, the amount of raclette that people buy is insane. I mean, I mean, I think just in, in to general eat there the, or to take, to home take, and, to take home with them. Home. I mean, in general, the amount of cheese people buy in Switzerland is like far and away way more than like <laughs> when I've sold cheese at farmer's markets in the US and people want to get like a quarter pound of cheese and like right. Switzerland they're buying it by the kilo <laughs> which for those of you that don't know metrics that's 2.2 pounds right yeah. yeah that's that's a lot more cheese yeah so and they especially in the winter raclette's a really popular cheese for the winter time and traditionally you just uh you like boil some potatoes roast some vegetables bring out some pickles have some bread and then you just they have like special little plates uh, that are essentially just like little cast irons and you just put them like either on your stove, on a heating element, uh, something, you know, over a candle uh, and you just melt cheese and then you just dump it right over your vegetables. I mean, yeah, the, the raclette cheese is like a, it's like a semi, semi hard cheese mm-hmm. that just melts into like the most rich yeah. decadent uh, It's the perfect texture. melting cheese. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, do you eat raclette a lot at home? Um, you know, not as often as I, as I should, but, um, definitely, I mean, you know, especially right now we're so early in the business. So I spend a lot of time cutting samples. Um, so definitely when I'm cutting samples of raclette, especially when we have like the, the end of the wheel, uh, that's mostly rind, which is actually, in my opinion, the best part. I'll always save those for myself. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, have you ever used an instant pot? No. What's an instant pot? I'm just curious. So I part of one of the things I like to talk about on the show is what people have been cooking. And I recently cooked with an instant pot for the first time. Uh-huh. It's an electric pressure cooker. Oh, okay. That has taken the the internet and uh, America by storm. My sister-in-law has one. I was just at her house. My mother-in-law has one. I was just at her house. And so I was curious to know if you had any great cheese recipes for it because I see lots of books coming out. Oh, really? Well, I got to, I got to do my research. I don't know. I mean, I was trying to think about what you could do with it, but I don't think that pressure cooking cheese is particularly necessary. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm not sure how that would work. (laughs) Well, perhaps, perhaps you'll have a chance to look at that. Yeah. Um, so when you, uh, you worked for a small cheesemaker in the Italian Alps, mm-hmm. um, and uh, as I understand it, uh, you had an interesting experience mm-hmm. there? Yep. Um, I mean, it was, it was a, overall a really incredible experience. Um, so I was in Val d'Aosta uh, in the Italian Alps, and that is the traditional region for Fontina. Um, so I was, it was through this organization, WOOF, uh, which is kind of a worldwide network of organic farms where you can go and travel and volunteer for farms. Um, and so I had found them in the WOOF Italy farm list, and they are in the Italian Alps. They make Fontina with their herd of cows, and they make uh, Toma di Capra from their herd of goats. Um, hmm. And they still practice uh, transhumance, which is a very ancient uh, tradition of bringing your animals up to the really high peaks of the mountains, which you can only do in the warmest months of summer when like all the snow is melted. And you bring them up to these high mountain pastures where the grass, it's, it's just, 
it's got an incredible diversity of species of, you know, wild grasses, wild flowers and herbs. And so, um, you know, it's, I mean, it's basically, it's free food for farmers, sure. <laughs> um, but it also like you can make some really, really high quality cheeses from the milk uh, that's being produced on these pastures. Because the animals are just eating such a wide variety. Right, right. Especially if you're making aged cheeses, like you're going to develop a lot more complexity and depth uh, in the flavor. Um, but also the your facilities uh, in these sort of conditions are usually pretty rudimentary. Right. Um, and so, and in fact, this, this particular where they where they have like their summertime farm in the Alps is an hour and a half hike from their their lower farm. So this is not just like when you say bring them up into the mountains. It's not like the mountains are just like you can point to it and it's like right there. No, yeah, it's you actually it's, have to. You go have to really you have to hike an hour and a half to with get in the animals, right? With so we're talking the, about shepherding. Well, yeah, with the cows and the goats. Yes, uh, the interesting thing. So to transport like equipment or like chickens and pigs, animals you can't really herd. They actually, there's a helicopter service in the Alps that, like, <laughs> so I've, I've actually literally Amazing. seen pigs fly. I can, I can die <laughs> saying that. Um, Wait, so they move, so they, do they basically sort of decamp the entire farm up yeah. into these high pastures? Yeah. So yeah. they bring the chickens with them and the yeah, pigs and everything else? Everything, yep. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, there was an, an early one morning I, uh, I got woken up by the farmer. He's like... 75 years old, looked no older than 50, was way more fit than I will probably ever be. Um, and their sow, which if, for those who don't know pig terminology, the sow is the breeding female. Um, their sow had just passed away the, the day before. And so he woke me up uh, in, in early morning hours to help him roll this sow down the mountain. Uh, because so no helicopter ride. No helicopter ride because the helicopter costs. I, I can't remember. It's some. Sure. It's, it's like five hundred euros a minute or something crazy. <laughs> and uh, you know, and I'm not going to say who the where the farm or the name of the farm because they were supposed to contact the authorities to have the sure. pig properly disposed of. But instead, uh, in the early morning hours, we rolled it down until it fell into a crevasse. <laughs> Uh, and hopefully has decomposed by now or is just frozen in a glacier. Uh, well, I mean, either way, you yeah. know, it'll either be found some, someone who's hungry will find it, and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or, or perhaps it is returned to the earth. Yes. Uh, well, that is, uh, interesting, an interesting experience to say the least. So while the herds are up there, I assume they're all, they're still being milked every day. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So they, I mean, um, you know, I think, as far as how rudimentary these facilities are, will certainly vary from producer to producer. But um, where they go used to be kind of a communal grazing area for the village back, you know, fifth, probably 50 years ago. It probably hasn't been used as a communal uh, farm uh, in, in quite a few decades. Because there are so few producers There's now? so few producers left that are still doing this. Because it's hard work. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to just keep your animals in your main farm. And, just, right, and bring food to them. Right. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but so these guys, they had a really, a pretty good setup. They had like a full, uh, milking system, um, up at that, at that farm. So yeah, we would milk the cows twice a day, every day. I mean, I, I want to interject here for anyone who's listening, who has not spent any time around farms and I've spent only a very tiny amount around dairy farms, but it's important to remember that animals, I actually don't know what, what, how it works for sheep, um, or in goats, but I know cows need to be milked twice a day. Yeah, and that's kind of... And that's seven days a week. 
365 days a year. Yeah. Well, they, you know, all, all, the animals will dry off for a couple of months. Um, but yes, you know, in your typical dairy farm, they have what's called a staggered breeding schedule so that they always have cows that are calving or, you know, giving birth all throughout the year so that they do, they are producing milk right. 365 days of the year, twice a day. They, cause you could only milk once a day, but if you did that, the, the cows would naturally produce less milk. So uh, you would just make less money. And in fact, in very industrialized farms in the United States, they actually milk every eight hours. And so they're wow, like so literally milking around the clock. Ah, oh, those poor cows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a friend who keeps a very, I think she has five animals maybe. Um, but, you know, it's very hard. She can't just go on vacation. Right. right. There's no like. No, dairy farming moving. is probably the hardest uh, kind of farming you can get into. And yeah, you can't ever take a vacation. Yeah. Because somebody's got to milk the cows. Someone's got to milk the animals. What is your favorite kind of milk? Ooh, wow. Either, either you know, breed specific or like, do you prefer goat milk to sheep's milk? Mm, to I definitely milk? don't prefer goat's milk. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I, don't, I don't like hate goat's milk, but of the three, I would say it's my least favorite. Um, but uh, I, I mean, raw milk, I will say that. So unpasteurized milk, uh, you know, of any breed or any animal. I certainly prefer over the pasteurized version. Um, and, you know, I got to say, you know, I like sheep's milk and I really like sheep's milk cheeses. But, you know, growing up in America, drinking cow's milk, you know, it's it's the one that's most familiar, most comfortable to me. Um, you know, sheep and goat's milk can both have these more like unfamiliar flavors sure. that when you're so used to cow's milk can be a bit of a turnoff. Yeah. And is there a particular breed of cow whose milk you think is like just so much better than the rest not that i've yet come across and actually I mean, we are you know as americans we like you know we're very much like what's the greatest definitely right? of so. course um and i've it, you know it's doing what i do and uh you know having the the sorts of friends that i have i have actually done quite a few uh like side by side blind taste tests of like jersey milk versus brown swiss versus holstein um and i'd say generally speaking Holstein milk is the easiest to pick out. Not that I nail it every time, but it does just tend to be like a little more watery in consistency. Mm. Um, well, but, it's that familiar thing you mentioned, right? I mean, right. by and large, almost everyone who's poured poured themselves a glass of milk this morning or poured milk over cereal, that was Holstein milk. Exactly. Yeah. Even if it was coming from an organic source or, right. you know. Um, but no, I haven't yet found a milk, <laughs> a breed specific milk that stands out to me as the very best. Um, and what about what about cheese? I mean, as someone who has made a lot of cheese and tasted lots and lots of different kinds of cheese, do you have a particular type of cheese? I'm not going to ask you to name like your favorite cheese in the world unless you have <laughs> one off the top of your head. But no. <laughs> is there a you know? Do you prefer cheddars or do you prefer soft rind cheeses? Like, um, yeah, you know, I I can't say that there's anything that I really do prefer. Um, you know, it's it's like anything. It's like beer and wine or you know, it's what goes with the mood or what's around. I mean, I would say my favorite cheese is the cheese I'm eating on the farm where it's made. <laughs> you know? So for a day like today, when it's 70 degrees in New York in February, what's a, what's a good cheese for today? Oh man, like a, just a hunk of fresh mozzarella, a nice ball of fresh mozzarella would be great. Just yeah. eat it like an apple. <laughs> it sounds great. Yeah. I think, uh, I think, that, <laughs> think that's going to be, I think that's going to be lunch. 
Um, well, Sam, we're almost out of time. Um, I wanted to make sure everybody knows where to find Yumi. So the website is yumi.lu. Yes. There is not a ton of information on that website. Okay. They are kind of uh, deliberately uh, lacking in information on the website. Um, but you can always reach out to me. Um, my email is sam, just S-A-M, at yumi, which is J-U-M-I dot L-U. I can answer any questions you have or tell you where to find it, or maybe I can just send some to you. Um, is the Yumi logo on the site there? The, uh, the stickers that you gave me? I, I feel like it's something that's hard to... De- I mean, I guess the best way to describe it, it is uh, the 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 Yumi logo or a Yumi logo. Yeah, it's like it's the unofficial logo. Yes. Uh, is a picture of uh, of two... Um, I guess they're... They're sheep, right? Or they're they're goats? cows, and oh, they there's a cows. more okay. detailed drawing of it where they're Got definitely it. cows. Okay, um, but you know it's open to interpretation. They're 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 uh, they're copulating cows. Yes, uh, yes, exactly. And and I you know the and I think it is something that is important to remember when you are eating cheese that that is a part of the process. That exactly. is important to the production of the milk. You got to teach kids where the milk comes from. That's right. It's sort of like how teaching them how the sausage gets made. Exactly. <laughs> Um, any, uh, anything else that you want, uh, people to know about Yumi? Or um, about you? I mean, gosh, uh, I would, I guess Yumi, I just think, you know, they, to you know, it's, I'm really, it's really great to work for a company where I really stand behind the cheeses. Like I think the quality of the cheeses are really awesome. Everything's produced from raw milk. The milk is processed into cheese right away. It's never being stored for any period of time. Um, so I think it's just, it's really great cheese. Uh, I hope you can find it and taste it for yourselves. And, uh, hopefully you will, you will agree with me on that, but, uh, I'll second that. I think it's, I think it is incredible cheese. Everything I've tasted from them really is, is top quality. Yes, me too. But they don't make mozzarella. So not yet. Can't eat their cheese today. Not yet. Degree day. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sam, for joining me on Feast Your Ears. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears. Big thank you to David Tattashore for engineering this show every week. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have any questions, you can reach me, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. You can follow Sam on Instagram at Sam Frank Cisco, like yep. San Francisco, but with <laughs> Sam Frank Cisco in there. Uh-huh. And you can follow me on Instagram at the Foodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.
ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.